to do that. If y'all will go ahead and turn to, uh, as he's doing that, turn to, to Luke 14. Luke chapter 14. It's like forever since I've uh, since I've preached. I think it has been. It's been a while. Um, I'm looking forward to this morning um, and our text this morning. Uh, but before we get into it, let's let's review. It's, it's been a while since I've done this too. Um, so we'll test you because it's been a while since you've been tested. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Luke. Yeah, that's right. Who is Luke? Historian, doctor, physician, historian, ministry companion of Paul. That's right. So, who's he writing the gospel to? Theophilus, Gentiles. Theophilus and the Gentiles. That's right. Who's Theophilus? You also have an important man. An important man. That's right. We don't really know who he is. We're not sure. Uh, we know that. Uh, that he could have been a high-ranking government official. He was, he was pretty important. We know he was a disciple of Luke. And so, um, but Scripture calls him a... Um, most excellent. Most excellent. That's right. Sure, that's right. Man, I need to be tested instead of testing y'all. Goodness gracious. Um, and so what's the what's the purpose of Luke's writing the gospel? Why, why did he write? Keep a record. Keep a Look for him to know the certainty of the things that he was taught. That's right. So, so give an account of Jesus' ministry, and that so Theophilus would know uh, that the things that he was hearing, the things he was being taught, were true. All right, that's good. That's good. So, uh, I want to start uh, before we really jump in. I want to start uh, by telling you a story. It's a true story. I uh, just want to share it with you. Some of you may remember this. It didn't happen that long ago, but uh, in 2007. In Colorado, a, um, a, a boy by the name of Matthew Murray shot and uh, killed uh, Tiffany Johnson. She was 26 years old. And Philip Krause, he was 24. They were volunteers at a, at a youth rally. And uh, they were having this youth, youth rally. He came up and uh, he shot and killed them. He killed two more people uh, later on in the church. And uh, one of the people that witnessed that shooting, uh, they, they gave a quote to a, to a magazine and here's what they said. He said, Matthew was in the building for half an hour talking with students. And then he asked to spend the night. Tiffany was called to the front because she handles hospitality. He said, normally we would not have, uh, have someone spend the night without knowing them or arranging it ahead of time. And so after that was explained to Matthew, Matthew said, then this is what I've got for you. And he pulled out a gun and he began to shoot. He fired a few shots, uh, but after firing a few shots, he had his foot in the door, uh, and at some point, his foot slipped, and he fell backwards, the door slammed behind him, and it locked him out. It locked behind him, and so it automatically locked, so uh, he couldn't get back in. He was knocking, and he was trying to get back in, and right about that time, other staff and students drove up to the building, and they saw him banging on the door trying to get in, and he spotted them, and when he saw them, he took off. And another student performed CPR on Tiffany, and uh, she, as she as she performed CPR, uh, Tiffany regained consciousness, and uh, she asked a, uh, another trainee uh, there, whose name was Holly, she said, is it bad? Is it bad? And uh, Holly says, yeah, it's bad. Tiffany looked at Holly and uh, her boyfriend, who was also shot, she looked up at him and she said, we do this for Jesus, right? We do this for Jesus. So I can't think of a better question for us to, to ponder on this morning and to ask ourselves, as we read the text, really, it jumps off the page. We're doing this for Jesus, right? Amen. 
Everything we do, we do it for Christ. And so even though most of us haven't personally experienced something like that, something that violent, something that tragic, uh, I want us to, to consider two questions to come out uh, from this to us this morning. And be honest with yourselves. You don't have to answer it out loud or tell anybody your answer. But, but ask these questions of yourself as we go through this morning. Be honest about them because uh, the more honest you are, the better understanding uh, you're going to have about what kind of disciple you are and the better understanding you're going to have about where you really are spiritually and how well you're spiritually growing. So here are the two questions. Uh, as, you, as you live your life day to day, as you live your life day to day, not just here on Sunday mornings, not here on Wednesday nights, but day to day, every moment of your day as you live your life, what's the source of your security? What's the source of your security? And the second one is, where do you gain your sense of worth in the world? What's your source of security and where do you gain your sense of worth in the world? Another way to ask the questions is, what are you striving to achieve in life and why? Some of you might... Uh, and I know some of you, some of you probably got a spiritual, really, really spiritual answer to those questions. I'm striving to glorify God in all that I do is what you'd say, right? Uh, some of you might, but, uh, and that's good. If, if that is your answer, look, it's good. I'm proud of you. I hope you are. I hope that's your answer. But I want you to really consider what your day-to-day conduct shows. What does your day-to-day conduct show? You might really believe you're striving to glorify God in everything that you do, but does your conduct, your behavior, does it match up with that? Are you glorifying God with your behavior? Do your actions show that you, or do your actions show that you really just want to be liked by other people? Do you want to be accepted? Do you want to be well thought of with a lot of friends? Is that the motivation for, for a lot of what you do during the week? Are you motivated as being to be seen as, as intelligent or, or generous or understanding or, or spiritual or popular or independent? Create whatever. There's a hundred adjectives we could use, but but are you is that source of your motivation? What other people think about you? Have you been motivated this week at all to enhance the reputation that you really want to have? Have you been motivated to enhance your reputation? Does your does your source of security uh, and your sense of self worth self worth in your life come from uh, from what other people think about you? Is that where it predominantly comes from? What do your actions show that you're striving to achieve and why? That's what I want us to think about this morning. See, because the reason is, is our text, our motivations at the center of it. Our motivation is at the center of our text this morning. The, the, these verses are going to address uh, really in, in a real practical way the things that we should and should not pursue. The things that uh, the place that we should and should not be. Um, uh, Gain a, we, that we should and should not pursue in order to gain a, a stronger sense of security or significance in our lives. That's what we're going to learn from, from Jesus' words this morning. So before I go too much further in the introduction, let's let's read the text. Uh, if you're there in Luke 14, let's all stand. We're going to honor reading God's holy and perfect word. Luke 14, we start in verse 1. And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent and he took hold of them and healed, he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? 
and they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been, may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come to you to say, give place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And he also went on to say to uh, a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we, we, we thank you for preserving it for us for thousands and thousands and thousands of years down the line. Lord, it, it, we couldn't know you without it. And we thank you that you have uh, that you have preserved it and you have left it for us. And we pray for those this morning in, in other parts of the world who don't have access to it. We pray that uh, that uh, Lord that, that the Christians who are being persecuted in other countries who are being killed for for uh, having a copy of your word. Uh, there are some countries where they have to pass pages uh, back and forth to one another. Lord, we pray for them this morning. We do, Lord, because their faith. I believe in, in a lot of cases exceeds ours. We have access to your word. We have access directly to you and we gloss over it every single day. We take it for granted, God. Lord, let us repent of that this morning. And Lord, as we, as we come to your word, to study your word, Lord, I, I pray that you fill our hearts. I pray that you would remove the blinders from our eyes and you would fill us full of your spirit so that, so that we can be illuminated to the truth that you were trying to tell us this morning. We love you. We give you all the honor, all the praise, and above everything else, all the glory. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Yeah. All right, so in the... Uh, in the early 70s and 80s, there was a, there was a doctor named, uh, his name's Larry Cramp. He was a psychologist, and he, and he came up with a new strategy, a new counseling strategy. And it was based on, uh, on our motivation to build a sense of security and a sense of significance for ourselves. So what happens in his strategy is that the, uh, the person that's being counseled will evaluate all the wrong ways that they were uh, trying to gain security and significance in their lives. So uh, th- there are a lot of ways for us to draw to draw water from the wrong well, right? And that's why we have struggles in our lives. That's why we have problems and struggles. We act out in the flesh. We lose our temper. Uh, you know, I'm probably the only one in the room that's never lost his temper. <laughs> but uh, my wife will tell But uh, we, we say things that, that we do and say things we know are wrong. We, we, we act completely, totally selfish. We cheat, we steal, we, all because we're looking for a, a sense of security. We look, we're looking for significance in our lives. And what we're doing is we're going to the wrong source. We're going to the wrong source. Our, our security and our, and our significance doesn't come from our fleshly actions. That's not where it comes from. They, uh, we don't get the security and the, and the significance. We don't get it from all the good things we need to impress people either. 
So it doesn't come from our fleshly actions. It doesn't come from, from our trying to be good uh, in, front to, uh, in front of people to impress people, right? Real security and real significance, it's not a matter of how we perform for people. It, it doesn't even come from our performing for God. Think about that one. It doesn't perform, uh, come from our, our uh, obedience to God. That might be a new one for you to hear, but really it's, it doesn't. We have to learn this. We've got to base our entire sense of security and our entire sense of significance on what God already thinks of us as a believer. If we're believers, if we're children of God, if you are a blood-bought, born-again believer, God looks at you and he sees what? His son. He already sees Jesus when he looks at you. He sees Jesus in you. So you don't have to perform for his acceptance. You already got it. You already have it. It's secure. It's not going anywhere. So be grateful. Be grateful for that. And from that gratitude, then you be obedient to him. But don't try to be obedient to earn his gratitude. And I think that's a lot of times what we do. And it's completely, totally backwards. We have to rest in God's love and acceptance of us. And because we rest in that, then we're obedient to him. So let's look at the text. Um, we see Jesus hanging around the hero. He's hanging around people who are hitched up to the wrong well, right? They're trying to get water from the wrong well. And Jesus sitting at the wrong well himself, he is the well. So the people around him, uh, though they're at the wrong well, and these people are trying to, to get a greater sense of security and a greater sense of significance for themselves. So in this first part of the text we read, Jesus uh, made the Pharisees insecure. And, and because of that, he upset their sense of significance. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to trap him and they wanted to, to, to do away with him. So here's our first point. They were pursuing the wrong practice. They were pursuing the wrong practice. Let's look again at the, at the first six verses. It happened when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath seat bread. They were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent, and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a, a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make a reply to this. So it was all set up, right? All of this was rigged from the beginning. They were, they, they, they came to this place that they carefully picked out, right? They completely, or they carefully picked out this place. It was the home of a, of a prominent Pharisee. So he and his guests would, uh, would, would could, could uh, observe Jesus and observe what he would do. They wanted to look at him and watch him up close. And so uh, as, they, as they watched him up close, they wanted to track him. And, uh, and, and they wanted to be able to give this unified testimony of how Jesus sinned. It was just another test to see if he would violate their man-made traditions. The man-made traditions that they had that, that went they went beyond God's law about the Sabbath, right? God had a law about the Sabbath, but the man-made traditions that the Pharisees had went beyond God's law. And at this point, you got to remember, we've looked, we've looked at this, and you got to remember Jesus has already violated the Sabbath seven times. Uh, their traditions, not the not God's law of the Sabbath, but their traditional man-made laws of the Sabbath. He's already violated them seven times. He cast out a demon in Luke four. He healed a fever in Luke four. That was actually the same event, but there was two separate things that he did. Uh, he allowed his disciples to pluck grain in Luke six. He healed a lame man in John five. He healed a man with a paralyzed hand in Luke six. He delivered a crippled woman who was afflicted by a demon in Luke 13, and then he healed a man born blind in John chapter 9. So 
Not real sure why the Pharisees felt like they, they needed some more evidence. Because uh, he's already given them plenty, but uh, they, they acted like they needed some more evidence. And I don't know why, but what I do know is Jesus wound up turning their game around on them. He turned it around on them and he used the opportunity to teach them about the true source of security and significance. They, they, they set the trap, what they did. That's what they did. They set the trap, they baited him, and they baited him with something that they knew he was going to find irresistible. Jesus was going to find this irresistible. This man was suffering. And this man was suffering, they would have never invited him to their place to begin with. But they wanted to use him as bait. They knew Jesus couldn't be in the presence of human suffering and not do anything about it. If he ignored, if he ignored it, if he ignored this afflicted man, afflicted man, then he didn't have compassion, right? If he ignored him, he didn't have compassion. But if he healed him, then they, they, they believed that he was openly violating the Sabbath and they could accuse him. So they put this dropsy man right in front of him so he couldn't avoid seeing him. He couldn't avoid him. And so they, and then they waited. They waited for him to, to act. Now, dropsy, I learned this this week, and Buffy can correct me, but uh, as I studied for the message, I didn't know much about it until I started stu- studying it, but it's, it's pretty painful. It's what we call today uh, edema. Is that right? It's what we call today edema. It's where your body will hold certain fluid. It'll, it'll swell up and it can cause, uh, it can cause uh, kidney disease and cir- uh, cirrhosis of the liver and just massive swelling of your body. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Sweet. I got that right. Anyway, uh, the Pharisees, what they were doing with this man, uh, they, they took him and they put him right in front of Jesus and what they were doing was completely, totally heartless. It was cruel, uh, like nothing else that, 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 that Jesus or some of these other men have ever seen. It was ever seen. It was extremely cruel for them to do. But even our understanding that and recognizing how cruel it was and how heartless it was, we've got to keep in mind that if we're not careful, if we're not careful and, and, and intentional with our walks with uh, with Christ on a daily basis, we'll wind up doing the same thing. We'll wind up trying to do all kind of cruel and hard-hearted things to try to earn acceptance and earn significance in our lives and earn security, get a better sense of security. Just like the Pharisees did here. A lot of times, we, when, we, when we feel the need to increase our sense of security and our sense of significance, our eyes aren't on the Lord. They're not. They're really not. Our eyes aren't on the Lord. And when they're not on the Lord, we're, we're pretty stubborn. We're extremely stubborn when, when that happens. See, even after all the warnings Jesus had already given them at this point, they still didn't obey and they still didn't see it. They still could not see it. Their hearts were still hard to the message Jesus had been trying to teach them all this time. But what did Jesus, did not, what did Jesus not do? He didn't give up on them. The fact that he was even at this party, even realizing they were trying to trap him, he still sticks around to teach them. He still stays. That shows that he hadn't given up on them yet. Right? So here's what he does. He, he confused them with a question. He confused them with a question. Um, a single question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So if they said yes, then they were gonna they were gonna look soft, they were gonna look hypocritical. But but if they said uh, if they said no, then they could be accused themselves of being inhumane and uncaring. So you know it was one thing for them to, to condemn Jesus and for healing on the Sabbath, but it was a, this was a completely different ballgame for them for them to actually take responsibility for denying uh, for denying a, a needy person. 
for denying the, the healing of a needy person. So Jesus had them trapped, right? They were trying to trap him, and Jesus turned the tables on them. He had them trapped. So how did they respond to that? How did they respond? Exactly how you'd expect them to respond. It's right, crickets. They, they, they didn't have a change of heart or confess that Jesus was right. They, they were too prideful to do it. They were too prideful. So, so they, they, they responded with this pitiful silence. They were sulking. Just the same way we do when we get put in our place. He put them in their place. He turned the tables on them and did to them what they were doing to him or trying to do to him. And they had nothing to say. They could have confessed that he was right. Right? They could have, they could have uh, repented and confessed, but they didn't. They didn't. They just sat there in complete silence. So Jesus says, drink from God's well. But what they were doing, they were bound and they were determined to get their security and their significance from a well that didn't offer security and significance. It was a false security that they were chasing after. See, they'd rather retaliate than repent. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to promote their traditions, man's tradition, traditions, rather than protect, protect God's truth. Don't we see the same thing happening today? It, it happens in the church today. Christians try to protect their sense of security by doing what? They have nothing, but when they do do something, they cling to traditions. They cling to traditions and methods that you don't find anywhere in this book. Let me give you an example. When the, when the pilgrims landed in America, you know what happened? When they landed in America, there was a new tradition born for how churches were going to operate. It's called democracy. That's what happened. So this new tradition, they said that leaders were supposed to find out the will of the people, the will of what the membership was, and then they were supposed to perform the will of the people. That's what became the tradition of the American church. Even though the Apostle Paul's got, you can see in Scripture, in his letters to Timothy and his, his letters to Titus, he tells them, he said, select godly men. Select godly men. Men who are in close communion with God. Those are the people who are most likely to discern Christ's will. Those are the people and those are the men who will make God's will the focus of the church. But that's not what's happened. That's not what's happening. We make the will of the people the focus of the church. And I promise you, not all the people sitting out there are godly people. It's just the truth. Here's another example. It's been with us since the late 1800s. Started with Charles Finney. And uh, some of you know where I'm going with this. But old Charles, he, he, used the, uh, he used the altar call for people to walk down an aisle. He said that the coming forward was, was their demonstration of commitment to Christ. And it usually happens when music is played and, and, and we're singing during the invitation at the end. And that tradition took hold. It took hold. And today there are churches, there are a lot of churches, there are probably the majority of churches, Protestant churches in America, who believe that the church must have an altar call every single week, like it's the only way people can commit their lives to Christ. We do it here at Crossway. We do it every single week. Every Sunday we give an invitation, we give an altar call, I'm going to give one today. I am. But the glaring difference in what you see between most places and what you see here at Crossways, I'm not telling you, nor have you ever heard Buffy tell you that you have to step out, step out of the aisle and walk up here to get saved. There's nothing magical about that aisle. There's nothing magical about a sinner's prayer. 
Absolutely nothing. God is the only one responsible for salvation. God is the only one who can save a man. So what we do is we give invitations to conversations. Right? We give invitations throughout any sermon. If you feel convicted, if you you feel like God's calling you to himself, then we invite you to come down during the invitation. And what happens next is not a proclamation of salvation. We're not going to proclaim any man who walked down this aisle to be saved. Because how do we know? Right? All, all it is is a testimony by you that God's opening your eyes to His truth and the Holy Spirit's working in your life. That you, that you recognize that in that moment. And then we talk privately. We have conversations privately. And so we can't do that for somebody walking down the aisle for the first time. Because you don't know if it's, if it's a true uh, salvation. You don't know if, it is a, if, it's a, uh, if it's a genuine repentance or if it's just an overwhelming emotion. Because we can get overwhelmingly emotional in any message. doesn't mean you've been saved, right? It doesn't mean God has saved you. So that's why the conversation is important. That's why we have to talk. But you just don't see it today with altar calls. What you see most of the time, and it, and it drives me up the wall, but you see invitations given where the gospel's never even been presented. What are they being invited to? What are they being invited to? You see the preacher uh, who, who, who has never met the person that walks down the aisle, that person walks down the aisle that first time, that preacher has never met that person, and he proclaims him to be saved because he walked down that aisle. How is that possible? How is it possible? Walk in the aisle? I mean, does it somehow give you eternal life? Because that's what we're telling people today, that walk in the aisle, the altar call, the tradition of the altar call has, has taken the place of genuine repentance and faith. That's what's happened. And, and, and to me, I'm, I'm just being completely honest with you, that's complete, total blasphemy. It's heresy of the worst kind. And I'll explain to you why. It, because it gives people the false hope and the false assurance that they're sal- of their salvation, and it's sending people to hell every single day. People believe because they walked an aisle when they were 8 years old, 10 years old, or 38 or 40 years old, just because they walked an aisle and said, I want to be saved, and the preacher said a quick prayer and said, repeat after me, that, they, that they're saved. And then they go live their life, and they've never changed. Nothing has ever changed about their life, but they say, hey, I'm good. Me and God, we're good. And they're going to they're gonna bust the doors of hell wide open. That is, that is heresy of its worst kind, and it is... It has infiltrated our churches in this country, and we need to be serious about getting it out. We do. But the truth of the matter is that we all, all of us have some kind of tradition. We've got all, some kind of a, a tradition that gives us comfort. Um, we all do. Uh, maybe it's, you know, it's a specific kind of worship. Maybe we appreciate a specific kind of or style of worship. Um, there's some of us that will only read out a certain um, versions of the Bible. Um, you know, and that's, and that's fine. You know, whatever makes you comfortable. So, some people will uh, uh, only want to pray a certain way, you know, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed and, you, and your hands folded. That's the only way that you can pray. Um, some people uh, just, just appreciate order, right? Their, 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 their traditions or their... Uh, uh, the traditions are ordered. You know, the worship service has to follow a certain order, right? So you got to start with the announcements, and after the announcements, you got to have music. And after music, you do the offering, and after the offering is the 
is the service, and after the service is the, is the invitation, and then after that you go home. Um, but here's one that'll, that'll really get you. It's the tradition that says we need a nest egg in our church. But we have to have some rainy day money. You know, to be safe. So what happens is you see a lot of churches sit on thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, just in case something happens. You know, something might happen, we might need that money. Where's the faith in that? Where's the faith in that? I'm just, I'm just being honest. Where, where, where's the trust that God's going to provide everything that we need? Where, where, the stepping out in radical obedience to do the things that he's called us to do and us get, using the resources that he's given us in order to do that. Where's the faith? You know, where is, where's that at? God's given us everything that we need to do everything he's told us to do. And he would never call us to do something that he wouldn't then provide us the means in which to do it. But we're not doing it, right? Where's the trust that, 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 you know, where's the believers that say, hey, we understand all this money comes from God. He's given it to us to do what? To grow and expand his kingdom. That's what he's given us the resources he's given us to do, from whether it's from to the end of the road or to the end of the earth. He's given us those resources to expand and to grow his kingdom. So let's go do it. Let's go do it. Where are those believers? Uh, you know, it's a lot easier to say that, uh, Lord, it's a lot easier to find believers who are willing to hoard God's resources for their own comfort than it is to find believers who are really, really willing to radically turn everything over to see his kingdom grow. The reason it's easier to find those types of believers is because it's that way of thinking has become a tradition. It's become a tradition in this country in our churches. We got to have comfort. We got to be safe. You know, what if we don't meet budget this year? We got to have, you know, some thousands of dollars just to just to cover cover our butts. That shows no faith in God. So if we insist that these are the only proper ways, these are the only right ways, what we're trying to do is draw from the wrong well of security. That's what we're trying to do. So we deserve to be challenged the same way Jesus was challenging these Pharisees. We deserve that. It can be so easy for us to be so closed-minded, to be so closed-minded. Even when Scripture is clear that our traditions aren't His will, we'll close our minds off to it. We'll say, Buffy says it all the time, I don't care if it's biblical, it ain't Baptist and we ain't doing it. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ridiculous to choose a denomination or, or, a, or a tradition that is not biblical. It's probably never even occurred to the Pharisees to pray and ask God if there's anything they were missing. How often do we pray and ask God, hey, have I been wrong about something? Am I missing this, Lord? Yeah. Does it ever occur to us to pray that way? I think we need to, to, to not sporadically either. I think we need to do it often. I think we need to go to God and, and ask Him to open our eyes and show us where we've misunderstood His Word. Just like the Pharisees. How? Because if we don't, it's arrogant, it's prideful. Just like the Pharisees, it's arrogant and prideful if we assume that we've got it right in every area. I say it all the time. I don't know if y'all have ever heard me say this, but I know I say it with, uh, with the guys that I study with on a regular basis. But, you know, just because I stand up here doesn't mean I know everything, right? I can be wrong. I'm teachable. That's what a disciple is, is a learner. 
and I'm teachable. If I'm ever wrong on anything that I preach, I want you to come to me. And I want you to tell me, and I'll sit down, and we'll go through it line by line. And if I'm wrong, I'll repent, and I'll turn from what I believed before and begin believing where you showed me. I, I, want, I don't want to be wrong. I want to be right, but I know I'm not always right. We can't live like we're, we're right. If we believe we've got it all together, a man that thinks he already knows everything can't learn anything. That's right. You can't teach a man that already knows everything anything. So if he's not willing to understand that he can be wrong and, and, and be corrected and he's not open to correction, then that's pride and that's arrogance. In the last few weeks, I, personally, I've been reconsidering uh, the gospel, the way I share the gospel. With people, I've wondered if I if I've really misrepresented uh, because of traditions or because of the ways I was taught to share the gospel. I've really been thinking: Have I been misrepresenting the gospel because of these traditions? And here's what I realized: um, What we've done is turn the gospel into a transaction, just like a ticket. It's a ticket to heaven. That's what we've turned it into. Just like going to a movie, there's a ticket to get into the movie, and after we get inside the theater, we stick the ticket in our pocket, and we're done with it. We forget about it. But the gospel's more than an entry ticket. The gospel's more than that. It's progressing. It's more progressing than just getting in to heaven. The gospel involves a new heart. The gospel involves uh, uh, new desires and new goals that God gives us. The gospel involves the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us and does what? He, he changes us. He transforms us. That's all involved in the gospel. And also involved in the gospel is the gift of repentance. Which is what? It's the radical change of mind about who God is. And it's that, 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 that repentance, that radical change of mind about who God is, always, in every instance of true salvation, it always is followed by a significant change or transformation in a person's life. Did y'all get that? Let me say it again. Repentance is such a radical change of, of your mind about who God is that it's always going to result in a radical change in your life. That's real repentance. Because if it hasn't resulted in a real radical change of your life, then you've never repented. Did you? Amen? Amen. Look, we've got to stop treating the gospel like it's an entry ticket. We've got to. We, we, what we're doing is giving people false assurance that they're going to go to heaven. We give them false assurance just because they obeyed some man-made tradition. They walked an aisle. At one point in time in their life, they prayed a prayer. At a certain time in their life, they responded to an altar call, but there's no life changing. There's no rebirth. And we've given them false hope and false assurance. So we have got to make it a point to, to intentionally not be like the Pharisees in this text. They wanted to promote their traditions, man's traditions, rather than God's truth. They, they were going about the well. They were going to the well to, to, gain, uh, to gain, they were going to the wrong well to gain their security. So let's, let's repent rather than retaliate, right? Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes that, uh, that, that if we've given any false security to anybody when we've shared the gospel, if we've given anyone, just for the sake of us saying that we led somebody to Christ, let's, let, let's go to the Lord and repent of that and ask Him to open our eyes to be, to be aware of that and show us where we need to repent and where we need to change. So they were pursuing the wrong practice. And sometimes so are we. Here's the second point. They were pursuing the wrong position. They were pursuing the wrong position. 
I think Jesus took a, he took a lot of pity on these people at this dinner that he was at. Look, look how he reaches out, verses 7 to 11. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who was invited, who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of people who run the churches based on the status they think it gives them. It happens with pastors. It happens with church members. They, they move from one church to another. They think being in that new church is going to give them more respect or a higher social standing. They do it. I see it all the time. It's just like running, just like Jesus is talking about here, running to, uh, to get the seat of the, of the highest honor at the dinner party. It's, 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 is there not a sense of Prestige that's given to church members and pastors based on what child size their church is. Do, do, do people not do that in our culture? I hear it all the time. I know Buffy hears it all the time. Pastor, uh, pastors and church members are uh, trying to one up each other all the time based on how many people are in their worship services. How many did you have this week, Pastor? Oh, I had five hundred. Oh, I had five fifty. Uh, you have any great coupon? <laughs> that's 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 what you see. I mean, they're, they're just trying to one up each other, and, and it's all part of false significance of wanting to feel important, right? Most people have an invisible sign on their foreheads that says "Make me feel important." People want to feel important. People want to be noticed, and they want to be made to feel important. In Jesus' day, just like yesterday, it's no different. They, there were status symbols that help people enhance. They're standing in society. See, if you were invited into the right homes, if you were seated in the right places, and then the people would know how important you really were, right? The emphasis was on reputation, not character. That's where they placed the emphasis. It was, it was more important to sit in the right places than it was to live the right kind of life. Let me say that again. It was more important to sit in the right places, to be noticed by the right people, to hang out with the right people than it was to live the right kind of life. Pride and social status, uh, or pride and status are, are social issues in every single culture in this country. And status brings pride. And Jesus is telling us that it's destructive to our spiritual health. See, those who are truly humble, those people, the ones that are really truly humble, those people recognize their need for God, not their right to a blessing. So the, the, the way, the true way to achieve significance is to be what? Humble. That's how you true, uh, true, achieve true significance is to be humble. These people at the party, they were going to the, to the wrong well, weren't they? They were going to the wrong well, and so do we. We go to the wrong well way too often. We, a lot of times, occupy ourselves way too much with, with fights for our own prestige and our own status and our own standing. We want to be seen as important by other people, right? So here's what we do. We, we jump into positions of leadership so we can be seen. We serve in ways that will get us noticed and appreciated by people. 
And when we don't get the respect and appreciation that we think we ought to get, we get mad. We, we pitch a fit. We remind them of how big of a deal we are. We remind them of how often we come to church, you know, when the doors are open and how we've never missed being here. We remind them of how big of a deal we think we are. We get mad when they don't recognize us for what we believe that we've done. We put extra effort in our church work and, and, and we wonder more when we're putting that extra effort and that extra work in and we're preparing, we wonder more about how our church work is going to be perceived by the people in our church than, than we are concerned about how it's going to be perceived by God. But humility means that we ignore rank or class, right? Humility means that we can make friends anywhere and with anybody. All right? And also when Jesus told them to take the lowest places, he wasn't giving them a gimmick to guarantee their promotion. He's saying that honor and a sense of importance is not something that we can take, but it's rather it's something that's awarded. It's given. And Jesus isn't giving honor to those who deserve it. He's not against giving honor to those who deserve it. But he's against the use of power and prestige for self-promotion. What's the mark of a true disciple? Humility. Humility is the mark of a true disciple. See, God's not impressed with you. There's nothing about you that impresses God. Not your social status, not, your, not, not the church that you're in, or your standing in the church that you're in. He's not, he's not influenced by what people think about you. Uh, he's not influenced by, by people who, who, who you may have pulled the wool over their eyes and, and, and they may think you're the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. They may think you're the most spiritual Christian alive. God ain't influenced by what they think about you. He knows the real you. He knows your heart. He knows your motives. He knows your thoughts. God's not impressed by you. God will humble the proud and he's going to exalt the humble. Remember that. If you're prideful, God's going to humble you. And you may not like the way he goes about it. So they pursued the wrong practice. They were pursuing the wrong position. Here's our last point. They pursued the wrong people. <coughs> Verses 12 to 14. And he also went on to say that the one who, to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they have no, no means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So... When we try to create this sense of importance or this sense of significance for ourselves, a lot of times we turn to the, to the wrong source of praise. We, uh, sometimes it's the wrong sense of importance, uh, but uh, sometimes it, it is, it's the wrong source of praise. And so uh, Jesus, he knew that this Pharisee here, he knew that uh, he invited these guests for two reasons. There were two reasons that Jesus invited people that he had invited. Uh, or that the Pharisee had invited the people that he invited. He, he invited them to pay them back because they had invited him to previous feasts. And, and to put them under his debt was the second reason, so they would invite him to future feasts. But, but it wasn't a real expression of love and grace. But what it was was evidence of pride and selfishness. Right? This, this guy was buying recognition with this party. That's what he was doing. And Jesus isn't forbidding us from, from entertaining family and friends. He's not saying not, not to entertain family and friends. If that's what you're seeing out of this text, then you're missing the point. What he's doing, he's warning against entertaining only 
family and friends exclusively and habitually. You know what that is? When you only entertain and hang around and socialize with a certain group of people, that's called, you know, I guess to modernize it, it's called making clicks, right? That's what we do. And it's sad to say, but some in the church social scene, the inner circle, fit into this description. I'm just being honest. It happens in churches of every size. It happens in this church, even this one. Let me ask you, how many of you in here have ever had every other person in this church over to your house for dinner? How many of you? It's an honest question, right? We're a family of believers. We're a family of believers living and growing together in Christ, aren't we? Who believes Crossway's a family? Who surely believes Crossway's a family? Who lives like Crossway's a family? Truth. We've got to consider these things. Who reaches out to other members in this body in their time of need? How many times have you said, well, they've never invited me to dinner, so why would I want to invite them to my house? Or I don't have anything in common with those people. You know what that is? It's called elitism. It's called elitism. One commentator said this. He said, elitism indicates a selfish, proud, shriveled soul. Reciprocation as a primary goal is the product of an immense self-focus. If we don't reach out to others who can't benefit us, and we shouldn't just limit it to dinners, we must ask ourselves if we're even true believers. Now, let me be clear. I'm not up here slapping anybody's hands. I'm not, because I'm just as guilty as anybody of this. I really am. But as I've studied this week, God's revealed my shortcomings to me. And here's the truth of the matter. Our motive for sharing our lives with each other, our motive has to be the praise of God, not the applause of men. That's why we have to do That's why we have to do each other. What's at stake is our eternal rewards in heaven. That's what's at stake with, at stake with this. But we get so caught up looking for the, for the temporary recognition here on earth. But what God promises is he promises blessing at the resurrection of the dead. We'll just refuse to have this social status mentality. I'm going to close with this uh, illustration. A seminary professor, he wrote an article one time to talk about a trip that he took and his experience uh, with a uh, with a delay uh, in the trip. It was a delay takeoff of the airplane. And he said that it was a really, really long delay and it caused some of the other passengers to get really, really, really irritated. And uh, he said that uh, he noticed one particular flight attendant uh, on the flight. She was super, super graceful to every single person who complained. And finally, when the plane took off, uh, he, uh, he was able to get the flight attendant's attention, and he told her how amazed he was at her poise and her self-control. And then he told her he wanted to write a letter of commendation for her to the airline. And this is what she said to him. She said, uh, she said sir, I don't work for this airline company. I work for Jesus Christ. And before I go to work every day, my husband and I pray together that I'll be a good representative of Christ. So doing it for Christ's sake, doing it for Jesus' sake, that's the right motivation for everything we do. That's what brings a greater sense of security and a greater sense of significance than any other motive we have. Doing it for Christ's sake is is submitting not just to to the person who employs you, 
not submitting to just them or your spouse or your parent or another church member, but it's submitting to the Lord. It's submitting to the Lord because of your love and your gratitude for Him. So let me ask you the same question I asked to start with. Crossway, are we doing this for Jesus? Are we doing this for Jesus or are we doing this for ourselves? Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you how it, it, it pierces our hearts. And I pray that it has pierced the hearts of those of us in this room here today, Father. Lord, I pray that there be, I don't know the heart of everybody in this room. I know, I feel I pretty well do, but you know, I'll probably find out that uh, one day I'll be wrong. And so because I don't know the heart of everybody in this room, God, I pray that right now the Holy Spirit would flood this place. That, Lord, if there be any amongst us who are apart from your son, Jesus, that you would prick their heart, that you would take the scales off their eyes and give them the eyes to see and the ears to hear the truth of your gospel right now. And, Lord, if it be in your will that we would see your hand perform a salvation, a miracle in front of us this morning. God, we love you. We honor you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. And we ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So before I before we, before we close, I want to I want to share with you. I know that you know I just went an hour on this text, but I, I want to really share with you the, the really greatest thing I could share with you this morning. About six thousand years ago. This world was created in the very beginning with six 24-hour days. And God made a perfect creation that we see to play out in Genesis 1. But then the first man, Adam, what he did was he, he, uh, he disobeyed the Creator, right? His sin brought death and corruption into God's creation, God's very good creation. Genesis 2.17 says, But from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So we've seen creation, but we've seen the creation. Adam's sin is the corruption. But here's the catastrophe. Adam's race became so wicked that God judged the world with a great catastrophe, a global flood. And he only saved eight. Only saved eight. Those on the ark that was, that was built by Noah. Genesis 7, the 23, thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. And when Noah's descendants disobeyed God's command to, to fill the entire earth, God brought confusion on their language, forcing them to, to spread out over the earth. Genesis 11, 7, 8 says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. So there was creation, there was corruption, there was a catastrophe, and that was a confusion. But now comes Christ. The Creator became a man. Jesus Christ, He obeyed God in everything. Unlike Adam, unlike the first man that was created. Matthew 1 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all who took place, now all who took, uh, who, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus, 
which translated means God with us. So that was Christ, but then the cross came, it was Jesus, the Messiah, died on the cross to pay the penalty for, for all of our sins, for all of mankind's sin against God. And then he rose from the dead and providing life to those who trust in him as Savior. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then one day at the consummation, the Creator will remake his creation. He will cast out death and the disobedient and create a new heaven and a new earth and dwell eternally with those who trust in him. Revelation 21 said, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. What you just heard is what Paul called the power of God unto salvation. So I want you to understand something. I want you to understand something really carefully. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. There's enough grace to cover the sin to break in any one of God's commandments. Listen, the, the, good, the good shepherd is searching for you. If you've never been saved, if you have never known God or Jesus in a real relational way, the good shepherd is searching for you. He gave his life for you. He did. So don't let the sin in your life keep you from coming to what he's done for you. Because he already took the penalty for it. Everybody in this room has sinned. Every one of us has sinned. But the blood of the Lamb was shed as prepayment, as payment for your sins. And then he was resurrected and now he lives as our shepherd. He lives at the right hand of the Father making intercession for his people right now. So God's drawing you to himself. If you feel God is drawing you to himself, maybe he's nudging you to return, uh, to rejoin the flock or to get closer to him, then, then I want to invite you to that conversation I talked about earlier. Let's have a conversation about salvation. Let's have a conversation about church membership or baptism or, or come to the altar and pray and cry out to him if that's what you feel like you need to do this morning. I'll pray with you. Buffy will pray with you. Marty will pray with you. Coach, whoever that you want to sit down and, and, and pray with you this morning, if that's what you need to do, just cry out to God. Come to the altar. Repent this morning. Don't walk out these doors today. Don't let the, the, uh, the, the sun set on this day without getting right with the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. You, I tell you all the time, you don't know if you're going to pull out of this parking lot and get hit by an 18 wheels. Don't rely on something that you're not sure that's coming. You can't count on time. You don't have time. That's, that's a gift, right? You can't guarantee that you've got tomorrow or the next 20 minutes or the next 20 years. Today is the day of salvation. That's why scripture says it. Today is the day of salvation. Come to the altar. Let's have a conversation. Let's all stand.